Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm Dan Kendall, and I'm usually your host, but in this episode, I'm not. If you've been following Digital Health Today, you may have noticed that we've been expanding and experimenting with our format and our content, particularly over the last year or so. For example, earlier this year, we added new shows under the Digital Health Today umbrella, shows like the Digital Therapeutics Podcast and the Asia-Pacific edition of Digital Health Today. We have more new shows that we're launching, like the Digital Health 101 Podcast and even a Life Sciences edition of Digital Health Today. And all of these programs are part of our continued mission to serve the healthcare and innovation community and really to deliver meaningful information and conversations with authentic and experienced leaders. Today, I'm really pleased to announce another new format that we're trying here on Digital Health Today. And on this episode, we have our first ever guest host. (laughs) With me today in our virtual recording studio is a healthcare leader who's been a guest on the show several times. She's the chief strategist for Bayer G4A Partnerships. She's also a digital health advisor and investor. I'm really pleased to welcome Sophie Park to Digital Health Today. Glad to be here, Dan. Super excited. And we're excited to have you. Let me share with the listeners first about how this idea of having you as a guest host came about. Originally, you had suggested that I interview Jane Saracen Khan, who is someone that's really well known throughout the health sector. She writes on her website, Health Populi, which you can find at healthpopuli.com. I followed Jane and her work for many years, and I know you've known her for a long time. You had such a clear idea of what you thought Jane could talk about in terms of the intersection of health economics and women's health. And it's a really important topic, and I want it to be something that we cover here on Digital Health Today. And I just thought, you know, Sophie, you know this subject matter. You know Jane. Why don't you conduct the interview, which is what you did, and I really appreciate it. Now, I listened to this interview that we're about to hear, and you covered a lot of ground. You dove into some big topics, and there was one term that you used that was somewhat new to me. I think you know what term I'm talking about. Can you share that with our listeners and explain why it's so important? Right. So Jane has coined this term called the she session, and it's like a play on words from the recession. And if you look on the panel that she's on with Sonia Milsom of the Maven Clinic on our digital health forum, she'll be talking about health economics, social determinants of health, but really under this umbrella of women's health. What we're really diving into is how this pandemic and what we're still living through right now has impacted women and women's health. Yes, I agree. These are really important topics, and I'm glad that you led this conversation. You just mentioned a couple of things that I want to make sure we address. The first is that there's a digital health forum that's coming up on September 9th. Jane will be a panelist at that online event, and anyone can sign up to watch that by visiting the website g4a.health. That's the letter G, the number four, the letter A, then dot health. You also mentioned the co-panelists that will be part of that discussion at the Digital Health Forum with Jane, and that's Sonia Milsom of the Maven Clinic. A lot of people will be hearing about Maven Clinic right now. It's a great company that was founded about seven years ago by Kate Ryder, and it's focused on women's and family health. I actually interviewed Kate back in 2016, really back in the early days. I'll have a link to that conversation in the show notes as well. It's always fun to go back in time and hear how these companies sort of started and what their vision was. They actually just earned unicorn status with their announcement of a Series D round of $110 million. 
That values the company at more than $1 billion, and it's great to see companies uh, achieve such great success. Congratulations to Kate and the whole team at Maven Clinic. I even read that Oprah Winfrey is one of the investors in this round. So more great things, I'm sure, to come from the team over at Maven Clinic. What else should listeners know about the Digital Health Forum? So it's going live September 9th. So these are pre-recorded sessions. However, speakers will be online as well to guide these discussions and also connect with all of our audience members. You can find the registration link, super simple, g4a.health. You just click on the events tab and you'll be guided right to our digital health forum page. So if you're listening to this episode before September 9th, 2021, you should head over to the website g4a.health to participate in the Q&A live. And what if people miss it? Is there another way that people can hear and see it if they're tuning in perhaps after September 9th or if they can't attend the session on that day? Oh, absolutely. Our entire ethos here is accessibility and equity. And so we really designed this forum to be just that. If you can't make it, that's okay. They'll be on YouTube. They'll be on a lot of our social channels. So give us a follow and they'll be all online. Excellent, Sophie. I'm looking forward to attending it as well. We'll have links to that in our show notes at Digital Health Today, as well as at our second home health podcast network. Sophie, I also really want to thank you for being our very first guest host. You did a terrific job. And now let's air the interview you did with health economist, speaker, writer, and advisor, Jane Saracen Khan. Hello, everyone. I'm Sophie Park, Chief Strategist for Bayer G4A. And today I have a super special guest with me, an amazing guest. And I love her to death, Jane Saracen Khan. She is an author, a health economist, an advisor. <laughs> she runs a massive health economics blog called Health Populi. And she's really in this digital health space, you know, focusing on a lot of health economics, strategy, and healthcare for over three decades. And that's incredible. Jane, thank you so much for being here with me today. Sophie, I'm so delighted. Thank you for inviting me. Jane, I want to talk to you about essentially the work that you do on a daily basis. You are really the perfect person to take us through 2020 from a health economics and from a social determinants perspective. Yeah. So I wrote a book called Health Citizenship, which was everything I knew I knew about consumers in the first six months of the pandemic. And particularly in the U.S., would patients as health consumers start to morph into health citizens, quote unquote. Health citizenship isn't a new thing. Microsoft in Europe and other parts of the world talks about patients as health citizens. But I wondered, will Americans evolve into that? But as it turns out, as we entered 2020, the social determinants of health were what they were. People of color, people with less income, people with less education, et cetera, less access to clean air, clean water, ended up having worse outcomes from the virus. And we started the year with that kind of human and health capital. And then by the middle of April last year, the CDC had a report on outcomes for black people and Hispanic people in the U.S. versus white people. And it became clear within weeks that the mortality rate was much higher for people of color, indexing at higher risk for worse social determinants of health in terms of those inputs. So 
a lot of us have been talking about social determinants for many years. This goes back 15, 20 years, really, when we started to realize the zip code was more important than the genetic code for an individual. But for anybody who didn't get that or didn't know that, COVID just shone that light so brightly, and not just in the U.S., but in parts of Italy and other parts of the world. But social determinants are really everything when you look at somebody's health outcomes and well-being. And it starts in early, early childhood and really in the womb when you really go back and look at the return on investment for prenatal vitamin, literally, and good nutrition for a pregnant woman. And then that really can start to set a virtuous cycle versus adverse childhood events. And that's really what we then look at in COVID as toxic side effects after the virus, what we are going to be left with in this endemic stage now is the financial impact and the mental and behavioral health impacts from lockdown, quarantine, loss of job. So there's a lot there that we could unpack. I think there's a lot of information in there that's actually very eye-opening. And there was a really interesting statistic that you shared with the world out of Pew Research. 5.5 million lives lost due to COVID-19. And that's a huge number. And I think you mentioned it was almost a billion less primary care or even secondary care visits in 2020. That's correct. Could you just unpack that a little bit for the audience? What does it mean for health systems? What does it mean for sustainability? And what does it mean for costs and care? Yeah, so it was about 975 million visits. So I rounded up to 1 billion, which IQVIA, IQVIA, which tracks data in used to just in pharmacy and pharmaceuticals, but now is really looking at the whole health system. And they calculated that nearly 1 billion encounters were missed in the U.S. in 2020, from January to December. And those encounters are things like lab tests, imaging tests like MRI, CTs, mammograms, prostate exams, colonoscopies. The upshot, very simply, is that we expect thousands of what we economists coldly call excess deaths we did not expect to occur in 2020, later 2021, 22, and ongoing from late diagnosed cancers because colonoscopies fell, prostate exams, breast exams, and lack of chronic care visits. The other statistic you mentioned, just I want to be really clear on, is that 5 million plus losses were losses of life years. And so when we looked at the deaths of COVID, the calculation from that study was looking at years of lives lost that would have been expected based on the actuarial forecast for that person of that race born in that year. And again, the excess deaths tend to be more in people of color because their expected lives lost might be lower at birth, but there were many more of these people who died too soon. What could these people have accomplished had they either got a vaccine early or avoided the virus. So it is sobering. Now that health outcomes are at the front and center, what does that convergence look like? Is digital health part of the answer 
Digital health is part of the solution, but we can't do ready, fire, aim. We need to be anthropologically, culturally focused on the problem we're trying to solve and for whom. What are those persons' values? And then if they're paying for it, what is their sense of value? So values and value I talk about a lot, particularly because a lot of digital health is out of pocket for those who can afford it. At the base of social determinants, you can build a lot of brilliant things, even user-centered things. But if you forgot to ask the question, do you have broadband or connectivity? That person is screwed in the other side of the digital divide. So what we've learned in COVID is that broadband connectivity is a social determinant of health. You couldn't work. You couldn't go to school. You couldn't show your sourdough bread off on Instagram go to your faith-based institution over the weekend, whatever it was, unless you had access. So we can't scale health via digital until everybody's got access to connectivity. And I think that's a hugely important aspect. I know you've done a lot of work with consumers, consumer behavior, with healthcare, health tech. It's so interesting that it took a pandemic for someone to want to look at doctor's appointments online. What are some of the ways that you've seen the pandemic sort of open the eyes of the consumer? Yes. The good news from the pandemic is that we saw a drive to radical self-care beyond sort of Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop self-care for mainstream, main street people. This is really important. Walmart was open. CVS Pharmacy was open. Grocery stores with big health, beauty, and wellness aisles in the front were open in the pandemic. And those became health destinations that empowered people to take on self-care roles. The pharmacist became like a doctor at your local corner. Most people live within a few miles of a retail pharmacy or a grocery store with a pharmacy. And I'm really big on grocery stores with pharmacy because increasingly also in the pandemic, people started to eat food as medicine for immunity. So not just vitamins, minerals, and supplements, but the frozen food aisle for fruits and vegetables gained. That's my Nielsen data. Nielsen talked about people building the pandemic pantry. It was hygiene. So Purell, you couldn't even find on Amazon anymore. But we were in search at the lowest part of our Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We were hunting and gathering for hygiene and food for medicine. And then broadband, one level up on the Maslow curve. The pandemic taught people how to cook more at home and the health benefits and the general family benefits of being at table together. And I'll underscore there that older people who were on the other side of the digital divide for a long time took on Zoom and Google Hangouts and FaceTime So we found with older people Zooming for Easter and Passover in March 2020, early in the pandemic, families came together online. Those older people then took on telehealth visits and came to like them mostly. So that became a new workflow for older people in Medicare, Medicare Advantage, and older people really all over the world. Telehealth was everything if you wanted to talk to a clinician or a pharmacist, too. 
So I think these are some of the things we learned early in the first six months where telehealth grew like a hockey stick. And now we're seeing it recede some, but what's staying high is telemental health. People seeking counseling and psychological support via virtual platforms who never went before. And this is another good thing that the taboo on mental health, again, has been shattered. And now you're seeing in your world of digital health investing, huge amounts of money going into mental and behavioral health. And Health Excel up in Dublin has been quantifying that. And it's tremendous. And then we see different flavors of telemental health from the Calm app for sleep and anxiety and meditation, all the way through to the huge Teladoc providing direct-to-consumer psychological support, and then virtual reality for PTSD, et cetera. So huge area. So Jane, would it be safe to say, given so much adoption now spurred by the pandemic, has it spurred trust in technology? So we're concerned about where our data are going And every day we're hearing healthcare is a huge area to hack because it's very valuable health information. But also our data, particularly in the U.S., because we don't have the GDPR to protect all of our consumer data. We have HIPAA and GINA for genetic data and COPA for kids online. But in the U.S., it's a patchwork quilt. And we saw, sadly, in the pandemic, particularly in the U.S., we couldn't do real good contact tracing because people wouldn't even share their temperature data, let alone a positive COVID-19 diagnosis. We got a long way to go on trust, but we know without that we can't go forward. So the idea of a vaccine passport for travel is not likely the U.S. will have a uniform travel electronic passport like the EU is putting together. I was going to say, because I have an EU vaccination passport. And what they do is they gave it to me. As soon as I got that second dose, they were like, congrats, here's your EU vaccination passport. Fun travels. Yeah. No, it's going to be quite a mess, particularly in the US. We're not Singapore. What can I say? I know we only have a few minutes left, but you coined a term specifically called the she session. It's a play on recession, but it's so intriguing to me because everything that has led up to all these health disparities and the impact that COVID-19 has had not only on health systems, but people, families, providers, even payers, everybody... Specifically, what's so interesting to look at is the impact it's had on women. Can you shed a little bit of light? What is this she session and why is it so important to understand, especially through this pandemic? So if we look back to 2007, 2008, the previous Great Recession, which was largely based on the financial industry and real estate loans falling apart and impacting the world economy, that impacted men more directly than it impacted women in terms of jobs, because the jobs were in financial services and real estate and construction. In the pandemic, in the great lockdown and the shutdown of retail, hospitality, airlines, right? Cooking, childcare, home care, those hands-on occupations largely done by lower paid and largely done by women who were Black and Hispanic 
fewer white women involved, still millions of white women. But in the U.S., it was a she-session in the pandemic economy because more women's household economics were harder hit than men's. Men who could be knowledge workers, work at home, not so much women. Again, women have traditionally did not have those kind of jobs as of March 2020. So people who could work at home did, those who couldn't, lost hours, lost jobs. If they lost jobs, they might have lost health insurance. So when we think about women losing a job, losing hours, many women in the knowledge economy going home having to take on childcare responsibilities because their childcare workers couldn't come home. So you have two different scenarios, women who couldn't work at home and those who did largely taking on these other workflows, very hard to work at home if you have to educate three kids too, because school shut down. So we are now many months later dealing with a phenomenon whose name I didn't make up, but we're going to say it here, the great resignation. We're having more women with college educations not going back to work so fast. And it's not because they're getting 300 bucks a week from the government. It's because life has changed. People have gone through thinking about what is my purpose on this planet. The pandemic hit people hard. Again, mind, body, and spirit. The impact on women, the she session, is the fact that women lost income. And again, as we got into 2020, women didn't have as much savings as men anyway. Women didn't have as much savings as men for retirement. And the loss of the last year plus in this K recovery, where rich getting richer, lower income people not doing so well, the women who started off less well than men financially in March 2020 are much more worse off now. And now it's just really exacerbated with the pandemic. But maybe just to drill down a little bit, this really means that it will have some sort of a domino effect on the delivery of care, the quality of care that they receive. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So women have been the chief healthcare officers of their homes, determining roughly 80% of the healthcare dollar in their home. When you look at everything, how you choose health insurance, the -the over-the-counter drugs you buy at the grocer or the drugstore, et cetera. So this woman caregiver is a persona for many women who have kids, aging parents, et cetera, or living with a mate. They'll be helping make those decisions. Women have more agency over healthcare in the home. So the impact on healthcare is interesting and will continue to be interesting because self-care for women comes after caring for my kids, caring for my mate, caring for my pet, women caring for others, (laughs) then self. I come last. So in the pandemic, of course, this does exacerbate because if that woman didn't get her mammogram on time, what kind of outcome there? So if you are listening from a pharma lens right now, I have two suggestions for you. One, rev up your access programs for your expensive specialty drugs for 2021 through 24 ongoing. And two, really get the word out that women should get mammograms and become part of the larger health ecosystem for women's health, which is a huge opportunity 
Jane, maybe just to close it off, I want to end on a very forward-thinking note because I really do believe that the digital health landscape is changing. The way that companies are now thinking about building out potential solutions that are a lot more integrated, that show better outcomes, that have higher engagement, we're starting to look at some of these companies in that sort of a lens as well. But maybe from a health economic perspective, is the future bright in digital health and tech? Oh, no, I'm (laughs) very hopeful or I would go, you know, stomp grapes in Italy right now if I didn't think so. I think we've got work to do with the design, with getting closer to patients, with serving the underserved. But if we think about, say, digital therapeutics in a very broad way, not just value around a pill, but what are the services we can bake around a product where we're collaborating with partners who get into people's lives where people trust. So let's say people don't trust pharma so much or a hospital system so much, but they trust the grocer, they trust the bank, they trust whatever other services we can bake in around the experience. And we think about the patient journey much more broadly than the continuum of medical care. But then we start to bake in social determinants like food or transportation, where Uber and Lyft have started to play roles, getting people to doctor's appointments, the local Y or gym, we start to get around a person's life, and then we become indispensable to them, bolstering their health, mind, body, spirit. So I think if we think broadly and creatively in terms of partnerships, it's digital and. It's not just digital only. And again, fiercely, focusing on the person's life. I promise this is my last question. For digital health startups who are building solutions right now, what's your top advice that you would give them while they're building out their solutions? So three things, tweet style. Know thy patient's digital literacy and access on ramps and help reduce total costs for the condition. Very cool. Very cool. And with that, there's more to come September 9th. Dan will put in all the information. Jane's going to be talking about she session, social determinants of health, health economics, September 9th. So join us with Sonia Milson and Jane Saracen Khan. Thank you everyone for listening. Thanks again to Sophie Park for being a guest host for that conversation with Jane Saracen Khan. If you'd like to hear more about women's health, Health Economics and Maven Clinic, be sure to register for the Digital Health Forum taking place online on September 9th. Register at g4a.health. Find that link in the show notes. Also, be sure to check out Jane's website at healthpopuli.com. What did you think of this episode? I'd like to know. Drop me a line at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com. And if you'd like to be a guest host on the show, get in touch. Send me an audio or video clip introducing yourself and the topic you'd like to share. Digital Health Today is a production of Mission-Based Media. Find all our shows, including our new ones, at digitalhealthtoday.com and at our second home, healthpodcastnetwork.com. Our producer was Yvonne Urich, our guest host was Sophie Park, and I'm Dan Kendall. Thanks for tuning in, and until next time, keep on innovating.